Welcome to the Live Kabbalah, Live Your Truth podcast. I'm Rabbi Michai Cohen. And I'm Miriam Cohen. We are solepreneurs and founders of LiveKabbalah.com, an online school and community whose mission is to empower our students to live their highest selves. Kabbalah and Hasidus is the study of how to live our highest truth in this world. Join us in conversations with exceptional leaders, creators, and inspirational individuals as we explore how to live our lives authentically and wholeheartedly. Daniel is a, is a potter, is a mystic, and essentially a profound uh, individual that I found is just really just living uh, the craft and living uh, by example. And um, the way that we got connected years ago, Daniel, is that uh, I came over to you with, uh, with a project that I was working on, and that is trying to get my clay jugs into, uh, into production. And you sent me to the expert in the field. You said, I can't do this, uh, Shimon Bader. Um, who got the, got the wheels spinning, so to speak. And, uh, and now recently we reconnected and we met up about these, you know, this project. Uh, we'll see how it goes with that. But in the meantime, I got to really connect to you uh, the number of times. And I was so impressed by just so much of your profound wisdom. So I'm honored and, and just privileged that you're here with us. Um, with, uh, with, with, and sharing with us a little bit about you and about the life of a potter and basically, and why did you, let's just jump right into it. So why pottery? Why did you choose pottery? I mean, you're a nice Jewish boy. You could have been a lawyer, a doctor, you know, why a potter? Well, I thought I was going to be a psychologist, which is sort of somewhere in between lawyer and doctor, I guess. Uh, the, the simple answer is I don't know. And the simple answer to an awful lot of questions that you might want to ask, like, how did you get to Eretz Israel? I don't know. How did you get to Tzfat? I don't know. And to jump ahead yet more, one of the things that, I've, that I think I've learned is that not knowing is the creative position. We always thought, the idea is to get to a place where you know stuff. I've been doing this work now for 47 years, and almost every time I touch the clay, still there's an element of I don't know. I'm trimming a bowl. I think I know how deep I need to cut here. But if you ask me, do I know exactly? No, I don't know. And I guess the follow-up to that is I don't need to know. I think a lot of our, a lot of my early life in schools was being taught uh, that you need to know that there's information out there, and it's my job to acquire it, acquire as much as possible of it. So, I, in fact, interestingly, I grew up in England in a town called Welling Garden City, very boring town. Went to a very uh, academic school which was training for, uh, training for, which was there to get us into Oxford and Cambridge or Sandhurst Military College. Um, I was sort of okay at languages. I was lousy at more or less everything else. 
My art teacher took the trouble to tell me that I couldn't draw. My headmaster took the trouble to tell me I couldn't sing. So I was clearly heading for um, sort of a, an academic uh, career of some sort. I didn't believe in God. I went to university to learn psychology and specifically behavioral psychology because I thought that behavioral psychology was going to do away with the need for evoking God because everything was going to be stimulus and response and controllable and predictable. And it took about, I don't know, two or three months at university for me to realize that this was just not going to work. Did you grow up in a, in a home that had, you know, God, you know, religion um, in it? They, they, both my parents were uh, Holocaust survivors. They both got out before the real Holocaust. So I grew up with this myth that they had escaped. It was only long after I arrived in this country that I realized that nobody from Germany escaped. Maybe you got out, but you didn't escape. And uh, so I grew up with uh, less than half a family. I think my father still had uh, sympathy with religion. There used to be a mezuzah on the door to his little study, but that came down after my bar mitzvah. And that was my mother's deal, I think. Well, you can schlep him to Sunday school at the Reform Shul in North London until the bar mitzvah. And then I must speak, enough. Uh, so I really didn't uh, relate in any form or shape to anything Jewish. We did Christmas, we did Easter. My father imported uh, chocolates from, from Germany. So like the, the Chagim there, Christmas and Easter, that was like a big deal. At university, in I think the second year, I did a course called Humanistic Psychology. And the reading list for that course was full of sort of trippy, mind-expanding 60s literature, some of it written by Jews. Victor, like Frank Ramdas, Victor Frankel. Victor Frankel, uh, Ramdas, who is uh, Richard Alpert, I think. Um, uh, varieties of religious experience by uh, William James. Abraham Maslow. Uh, I didn't get as far as Laszlo at that point. Yes. Um, uh, Carlos Castaneda, Be Here Now, and a book by a potter called Bernard Leach called A Potter's Book. Hmm. Uh, and I and any other late 60s English potter that you may meet read that book, and within two or three years, we were in a pottery. Wow. That book had a profound, made a profound impression on me. Because among other things, I didn't understand, I understood less than half of that book. But certain things stuck out. And Bernard Leach, who was uh, uh, intellectually very well developed, uh, he learned his pottery in Japan. Didn't He went out there to do something quite different. He went out there to teach uh, metal engraving. Got into pottery there, came back to England started a studio in Cornwall, in St. Ives, it still exists, and uh, he wrote this book, among others, Potter's book, and he talked there about making with head, hand, and heart. And this, for me, was pretty revolutionary, because even though I made stuff, I did origami, I did some weaving, I did some uh, woodwork, but for a nice Jewish boy, that's not a job. That's a pastime. It's a hobby. 
And reading his book, I saw the legitimization, the legitimacy of working with your hands, using your head, and using your heart. Hmm. It had never occurred to me that you could put those three together. It was always one or the other, maybe a combination of two. So a seed was sown. But I was on this psychology track, and after my degree, I did a teaching degree. And in the course of that, we did a little bit with a very special lady called Sybil Marshall, who taught everything through art. So in the course of that, I did a course in wood engraving, not wood cutting, wood engraving. And that was, I think, the first time that I sat seriously and made stuff and had somebody look at it and tell me what they thought about it. And after that, I taught for a couple of years in a country school in the east of England, Fakenham. And I saw what I, I thought I wanted to be an educational psychologist. I thought there's a lot wrong with the educational system. I see a lot of children suffering. Uh, maybe I can help. What I saw when I was teaching was young educational psychologists coming into old schools with old teachers, trying to fix up very deeply rooted problems. And I thought, this is not a life. This is a, a career of frustration and I'm not sure I want to do this anymore. And I started thinking, well, if children who are good looking and bright and sociable have a wonderful time at school or any part of those, but I saw like a huge percentage, 30, 40% of children who were very unhappy. And to a certain extent, I was very unhappy at my school as well. And very unhappy meaning miserable, meaning getting up in the morning and I have to go to that place again. And I thought, well, where, where does learning maybe take place in a more positive field? And I thought, well, maybe a master and apprentice these days, not the old days where your parents basically sold you to raise some money out of you, but these days where it's a voluntary undertaking. I thought maybe the master is more inclined to get you going quickly. And the apprentice is not making a, a penny until you can actually produce stuff. At the time, Studio Pottery, led by Bernard Leach and his various apprentices and their apprentices, was very popular in England, very popular. All the big London stores had craft pottery departments and with a complete, total lack of knowledge, I managed to get myself apprenticed to a very good potter in East Anglia. Wow. Uh, who wow. I told him, uh, you should understand, I don't know, I can remember saying, I don't know how you get from a lump of clay to a fire pot. And to my surprise, he said, well, you're an ideal apprentice. The worst kind of ones who come from art school and think that they know, but it takes six months for them to realize that they're no longer in art school. Wow. So I learned with Robin for two years. I worked with him for two years as an apprentice in a flourishing studio where all we did was fill orders. We had nothing for sale to the public. Um, after two years, I decided it was time to move on. I still wasn't interested in God. I was into Buddhism. And Buddhism is very nice. First of all, it's a, a well-worn track for Jews, Buddhism. Um, because it doesn't require you to believe anything. It sort of says, uh, it stops you on the road and says, are you happy? And if you say, yeah, I'm pretty happy, it says, go on. Nothing more to so, tell you. So, uh, 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 Daniel, I was thinking, do, do you believe that the apprentice system actually gave you the skills and 
uh, fulfilled you in some way that you did not get in your former career and, you know, in your education? Did you gain something new from that, you know, from that two-year experience? I can see, and I've trained many apprentices since then. Uh, I can see the benefits of art school. I occasionally get twinges that I didn't have that freedom to play that art school students have. Uh, especially when I was teaching, I taught for about 30 years in Tel Chai, which is a yeah. community college sure. further north, where we set up a whole pottery department, a pottery school, the only one in Israel. Well, where you you learned three years. You set that up. It, when I got there, it was sort of, uh, it was like a, a rest and recreation for kibbutz women. Wow. Who were going quietly crazy on the kibbutzim. So you get them out once a week and let them play with some clay. Wasn't terribly serious. The, hus uh, the husbands are happy and everyone, you know, so now, okay. <laughs> now it's time uh, to make it something real. Yeah. And it was, it wasn't, I came and turned it into, it was, there were three of us. And when I came, I sort of completed the Trinity there and it kicked into action and we got this thing going. Um, wow. After three so years, you are trained, you're ready to be a good apprentice in a studio pottery. It's not art school. You haven't learned. You haven't had technicians running around doing everything for you. You've done most of the stuff yourself. And at the moment, I have an apprentice who finished three years at Tel Chai, and she's pretty competent and needs fine-tuning and knowing how different Tel Chai, how different the studio, real life, as it were, is from Tel Chai. So, so apprentice, apprentice ship and uh and schooling are different in the way that apprenticeship basically gets you to do what the master potter or whatever the you know the, the job is whereas the schooling is just you play around with theory and potential uh but you don't necessarily master the trade as well would you well, say that that's accurate yeah, I mean, one of the things I learned, Sybil, the lady who taught us teaching, is a remarkable lady. And she, among many other things, she said that schools, as they exist now, exist primarily to provide employment for teachers. Mm. That's Aleph. Wow. But schools, as they exist now, exist secondarily to allow parents to go off to work. So we haven't curious. mentioned children yet, and we're on to number three. And we could add administrators and staff and government and all kinds of stuff. Children do not really come top of the pile in the bigger picture of what education is. Wow. Nobody's really looking at children and saying, what does this specific child who is sitting here with me, what do they need now totally. to make the best progress? Totally. They're being fed into a machine and some survive and come out the other end, and others get chucked out somewhere along the line with a whole bunch of attitudes towards authority, learning, progress, their self-image, uh, all kinds of stuff mm -hmm. that I end up working with when I teach students at Tel Chai or in my studio. All this stuff comes out. Tremendous. So there's something so powerful about working with your hands, as you were saying, and that's, you know, there. But I loved what you were saying about working with your hands and with your heart and with your mind, which is, 
you know, what that book was, you know, that inspired you to do what you're doing now. Um, and I mean, I, I, I want to hear further about, about your travels in, 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 you know, in Buddhism and, 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 into, and into where you are now, which is a fascinating thing. But I just want to jump right in to now, how does pottery, how could, you know, working with your hands really be this, this endeavor, which, which involves your, your heart and your mind as well? So I, I, I know the answer, kind of, but I want, I want you to say it. I want you to bring it out because I feel this, it's, this is a real profound, we could say, chidush, novelty, that, uh, that relates to education very much. So uh, something else that happened in that same humanistic psychology course, and really I, I owe a huge debt of gratitude to that professor, on his door, on his room at the university, there was a note that said, work is when you'd rather be doing something else. Yeah, work is when you'd rather be doing something else. <laughs> and that blew me away. That really blew me away. This was like a big, big chidush for me. I'd always assumed that work is something you do. And then if you have money or time or whatever, afterwards you do what you'd rather be doing. The idea that you could combine those two and that your work was what you would rather be doing, mm. I mean, it sounds, it really does sound quite unintelligent. I don't want to use the word dumb, but I could, <laughs> referring to myself, that this had never occurred to me, but nobody ever told me that. Wow. It was all about getting wow. a degree and getting a job, and then what you want to do, this is what you're good at. Mm -hmm. Never mind what you want to do. So this was a big, a big eye opener for me, um, and in a way, it made me reconsider those things that I'd been doing and enjoying doing, like the origami and the weaving and the woodwork and the whatever. At the time, I was as interested in the apprenticeship deal. I wanted to see for myself whether my idea that schools are not the only way of learning actually panned out in reality. I was as interested in seeing how an apprenticeship worked as I was in becoming a potter to start with. And the truth is in those two years, there were so many things I didn't learn that you would think are like basic. I never fired a kiln by myself. I never mixed up a glaze by myself. We didn't, we didn't throw pots on the wheel. We worked on the wheel, but we used another system that involved using molds on the wheel that enabled somebody with next to no knowledge like myself to produce pretty high quality stuff very quickly. So I left there without knowing many of the essential skills that you would think a potter needs to know. But what I saw there was that, first of all, you can be a successful potter, you can provide an income for your family. And I also saw how a studio runs, how you get like I said to Robin, I don't know how you get from the beginning. So I, I, by the time I left, I knew perfectly well all the different stages from preparation of clay, making, trimming, decorating, loading, unloading, firing, glazing. I'd seen the whole thing through a number of times and handled a fair bit of clay. So going back to where I started, if you ask me how pottery, why pottery, the simple answer is I don't know. That's who was taking on apprentices at the time. Um, 
if some other trade had been uh, come to my notice as taking on. And one of the reasons they took on apprentices was that Bernard Leach took on apprentices. And his apprentices were Gdole Hador, and they were magnificent. They were my heroes. They were amazing characters making amazing pots. And uh, they all had apprentices and workers. So it was free, free labor as well for them. For them, well, it's, uh, you know, it says, it says in the Talmud, he who takes on a slave takes on a master. Mm-hmm. Right. As they soon have, as you have, have two, three people working for you, you're really no longer a potter. You're a, a, a production manager. Right. You have to keep them all supplied and check that everything is working properly. Right. But they were, they were on a roll. And yeah. I think these potters who had all read Bernard Leach's book, they all realized there was an opportunity there not to be missed. And they jumped right in. Mm-hmm. So go, just going, going back to that, to that notion of creation of, and, and, and creating with your hands and with your heart and with your mind. When I think about that, I think about, um, you know, God molded Adam. It says um, that God made Adam from the earth. And essentially the, 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 the potter, the first potter ever is really God. You know, so pottery, and we are really that piece of clay, which is, you know, I feel so interesting because, you know, we're, we're a piece of earth and we have inside of that, we have our neshama. So there's something so profound about all art and being, you know, using your hand, using your, you know, using your creativity. But in this form, I feel like there's something just so profound about it. And it goes back to the creation of the world. Can, can you speak about that a little bit more? Well, it's when you, when you say earth, the actual expression that's used is afar, mm-hmm. is dust. And uh, in my experience, people know these words, earth, dust, rock, stone, clay. These words that we use to talk about the mineral world. Mm-hmm. But as soon as I ask intelligent people what these actually mean, what is dust? What is earth? Is earth different from clay and sand? Where does sand come in? I met with blank faces as the wheels were in their minds and they simultaneously realized that they don't know and that this is something pretty simple and basic. They know a lot more complicated stuff. And to me, this is really the beginning of Kabbalah. It's something which is hidden. Nobody hid it. You just never bothered to ask the right question. And so you didn't get that knowledge. And to me, that's like that aspect of hiddenness that's used very often uh, by people to scare people away from learning Kabbalah. Uh, for me, it's the delight of knowing that this is all there. Mm. It's all there waiting to be discovered. Hashem didn't give us anything that we weren't meant to use. Mm. And it starts with the clay. I ask people, what's clay? And I get all these answers. It's dust, it's sand, it's earth. And they're all dancing around the real nature of clay, which is clay is the product of the erosion of rock. Mm. Now, if you think about it, if you imagine in your mind a mountain and a piece of clay, they're almost totally different. The mountain is huge and it's solid and it's eternal, and it's inflexible, and it's unbreakable. A lot of qualities on that spectrum. 
The clay is exactly the opposite. It's finely ground, it's humble, it's lowly, it's... Uh, malleable. You malleable, you can change it, you can form it. But now we know that the clay comes from the rock. It's the same material. It's been through a bunch of different processes, but it's the same material. Now, that's fairly remarkable, but in our tradition, rock is one of the names we give to God. Tzur, the rock of our salvation, comes up all over the place. We refer to God as a rock for those same reasons, immensity, eternity, King, yeah. inflexibility. Yeah. yeah, even Evan, the word Evan is uh, Evan Masu Abonim, right? The rock that the builders built became the headstone. Well, the rock is, head again, Evan, which is stone, stone, is interesting. I don't think we even have time to go into okay. all the ramifications of the, the rock and the stone and the clay and the dust and the sand. Yeah, but, sorry, you go, uh, go back to that. Yeah, go back to that, to that, con, to that the sewer. The rock is, uh, is, is stone different. is sort of some intermediate stage. Okay, yeah. But the rock, the sewer, mm -hmm. is God, and the clay, afar, is us. Mm. And in a similar vein, so different. We're so lowly, and we're so flexible, and we're so changeable, and we're so temporary, and we're so... You can add to the list. Wow. But it's the same material. Mm. And that to me was a huge realization because many of the relationships that we're offered with Hashem didn't really sit very nicely with me, like father and son. Not everybody got on so well with their father. Not everybody had a wonderful relationship with their father. Master and slave is even more problematic. Um, but rock and clay... To me, that's a very productive and creative and usable metaphor for a relationship. Wow. And wow. in the language, like you, you talked about God making Adam from afar. Afar meaning clay. You try and make something from earth, it sort of crumbles. If you want to make something like a golem, you use clay. And then you breathe life into it which is sort of a metaphor for what goes on in a pottery studio. You take a lump of clay, and sometimes literally, but figuratively, you breathe life into it. So the word for our creator is Yotzreinu, one of the terms we use, meaning our creator, Yotzer. Yotzer means a potter. I'm sitting in Beta Yotzer, a pottery studio, when Yirmiyahu and Avi gets the word from Hashem. He says, go down to the, your local pottery studio. Go to Beta Yotzer and see what he's up to there. Wow. Further to that, the word, one of the terms for clay in Hebrew, clay is chimal, uh, but it's also chomer. And chomer, as we know from chomer b'yad Yotzer, one of the more misunderstood yeah. uh, verses. That we say on Yom Kippur, yeah. So one of the Hebrew words for clay is chomer, which also means material in general, any kind of material. So those two words, chomer, clay, material, and yotzer, God, potter, to me, they sort of reflect this dual nature of 
this material or this material, who I am, mm -hmm. and a relationship with my creator. So that's sort of it's the interesting. It, point. It, it says about Mashiach that he will be riding on a donkey, Mashiach Rochev al Chamor. And the word for that is not yeah. literally just a donkey, but he is um, controlling or, or rather in, you know, the master of the Chomer, of, of the material, right, of the clay. So it's, uh, um, and that's one of the indications of, you know, of Mashiach times is that we're able to make that malleable, you know, form of, of, of this world um, sort of, you know, godly. Um, and of course, he gets his donkey in Tzfat. That's right. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we spoke about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, Tzfat was the donkey capital of, of uh, I guess, of, of Israel for sure. Yeah, the, silk, the Silk Route, among others. Okay. Yes. So, so the, the, the notion of, uh, of the creator you know, and of us being co-creators with Hashem, you know, so you think about other jobs. Um, I feel like every, every artist is sort of co-creating something when they're, when they're putting something on canvas, when they're playing music. Uh, but there's something very special about pottery that I don't know too much about. And I sort of, I learned you know, a little bit about pottery, just getting into what I was doing with, with the wine, with earth and air wines yeah. um, and the whole concept of it. But there's, there's a process there. And when I look at you and to be honest, like I, I, I don't see you around much. And I feel like you are just like so focused and you have like this, this, this quiet, just zone that, that, that you're in. And, um, and it's, and it's just something special you know, that, that it's just like a certain zone um, of, of being, being constantly in, in, even as we're talking now, you're, you're in the midst of creating, you're constantly like in this, in this focus of creation. And I think that's so amazing. That's so powerful. So what, so what is it about pottery that really just forces that creative aspect and and maybe you could share a little bit more about what you were saying at the beginning about the not knowing of the of the process of creating because I feel that that is a big part of um, of this you know Potter's journey of you you don't you don't know how it's going to turn out that well and and right. but how do we equate that with God you know because God does know how everything is going to go and so yeah I think it's. Uh... It's difficult. It's a difficult topic, but I think also in Tzfat, part of the training of Tzfat is being able to talk about these things which are beneath the surface and develop a language to talk about them. Yes. Uh, and I've been blessed with uh, many groups that come through the studio or came through the studio, maybe it's starting up again, so I had many opportunities to sit and talk to people about this kind of stuff. And it's through talking about it a lot, I feel, that one can develop a language to talk about it. So I think part of it is that clay has no form. Most materials, if you paint, you're using a brush and tubes of paint or little 
blocks of paint. Um, if you're working with metal, it comes in a certain form, which you then cut and change. And wood also, most materials come with a form of some sort, which you change. Mm. Clay doesn't come with a form. It comes as a mass. Mm. So again, you can, you can be a perfectly fine potter and not necessarily deal with all this stuff. But to me, it's like the whole nature of Tzfat, uh, where also I didn't really choose to move here. I was basically running away from Jerusalem uh, as far away as possible. And at the time, I didn't know that Matula existed. Otherwise, I might have ended up in Matula. But uh, <laughs> I ended up in, in, in Tzfat. And slowly over the years, I came to see that the Makubalim who lived here and wrote here, they felt a certain energy here. And they translated that in, in their writings, in their understanding of Kabbalah. They, weren't, they, did, they did little drawings occasionally, but they weren't necessarily artists. And then along came the artists who founded the artist quarter in the 50s and 60s after the War of Independence. And I think that also, it wasn't just that they were getting free housing. It was also that they were tapping into that same creative energy. But they weren't really very interested, most of them, in their Jewish heritage. And what's happening now is that there are a few of us here who are trying to combine both those elements, mm. both the art, the craft that we do, and our Jewish stuff. And my studio is exactly in the middle of, uh, over on this side, I've got the artist quarter. And over on this side, I've got the old city. Yeah. And I feel that my, the very position of this studio is saying to me, put these two things together. Wow. They're not two things, really. They're different aspects of one thing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of my work here and my understanding uh, my, the growth of my understanding, which I didn't have when I moved here, is uh, the ability, uh, and for me, the necessity of not having a distinction between my what I'm doing mm -hmm. and my what I'm making in the studio, all the processes that go on here, mm -hmm. and what I'm doing as a Jew here. They both have to coincide. They don't exactly overlap. But what I found is, as a Jew, I have a tradition. I didn't really know much about it until I reached Eretz Israel in 1977. Wow. I wasn't really very much aware. The extent to which I was unaware, I came here across North Africa. Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, hmm. or Algeria, Tunisia. And I would happily have gone over to Libya and Egypt and then made my way up. I was so ignorant of what it means to be a Jew. And uh, you, you made it to, to, to a kibbutz at the beginning? I made it to a kibbutz because I didn't, even though as soon as I got here on my way to Japan, wow. uh, as soon as I got here, I immediately felt at home. As soon as I got off wow. the ferry in Haifa, wow. I felt that's it, trip over. I wow. arrived home. I didn't really know what that meant. Um, wow. And you felt it. I felt it. And I've talking to groups of like birthright groups here. Mm -hmm. 
in every group there are one or two people who when i say that they sort of sit up straight and uh flutter their eyes and uh go yeah uh, they felt it too um <laughs> At some point, I, uh, I was in Jerusalem because if you, you know, if you don't know really what you want to do with your life, Jerusalem is a great address to be doing it at. And I did feel in Jerusalem, I did feel that really all I had to do now was walk around, preferably with a slight smile on my face, and I was basically done. All the existential questions and problems of why am I here, what am I supposed to be doing, I found just being here and not really knowing very much about where I was, I felt that somehow that was uh, a completion. I didn't yet know about the Ari's teachings that we're carrying the sparks of our ancestors with us and that our job here is to raise up those sparks. I didn't know any of this stuff at the time. At a certain point, my, en my entry, my passage from Buddhism to Judaism was via the Kabbalah, mm. was via Dr. Berg who is now buried here in Svat. He was my first teacher, and I was quite close to that family. From the Kabbalah Center. The Kabbalah Center. Worked for him for a couple of years as an editor. Um, wow. We sort of parted ways when, uh, when we moved to Svat. But he showed me, and not he personally telling me, but when he talked, when he taught, I could see that there was stuff in Judaism that nobody had bothered to tell me about mm. in the Reform School in mm. North London. It was a lot more interesting than I had thought. And so I realized that I, I was part of a Jewish tradition. I was not aware of that tradition. I can remember thinking that it was almost like discovering that I had a tail, like some limb that I now had, that I'd always had, but I'd never been aware of. I never bothered to look around and see it there. And at some point, when things settled down a bit, I found myself, I was learning in yeshiva half a day in Orsameach, because I realized I'd been learning Kabbalah for a year or so, and I didn't know the basis of Yadut. I knew all this fancy stuff, but uh, knew. I'd been exposed to all this fancy stuff, but I didn't have any any uh, grounding. Foundations. So I took myself off to Yeshiva. There weren't as many as there are now. And I was working mornings in Yeshiva and afternoons in a pottery studio. Oh, wow. And at the time, those were two separate undertakings still. And it was only after I moved to Tzfat, where I really knew part of the reason for moving here was that I wanted a house and a studio together. There was already some in Yan, some, some uh, essence in my mind of wanting to put things together, mm. not to have things separate, work and what you really want to be doing, wow. where you live and where heart, you work. Heart and mind, right? Heart and mind, head and heart and mind. Yeah. And I get to learn the Ramchal's description of what we're doing here, revealing Hashem's oneness. It hadn't occurred to me that one of the ways in which you reveal Hashem's oneness is by making your life as much one as possible. And that in itself is a revelation of Hashem's oneness. So it was only after I got to Tzfat and sat quite alone for quite a long time 
not in this studio, in a little studio right at the very end of this alleyway. Uh, starting to starting to learn the profession. And it was very scary because everybody knows that in order to learn, you need a teacher. And I didn't have a teacher. I was going to find a teacher in Japan. And I'd left Jerusalem because nobody there was doing the kind of work that I wanted to do, that I thought I wanted to do, but couldn't yet do. So I found myself quite alone in a little leaky studio in the back of beyond, in a town that was the back of beyond. And it was pretty scary. And it took me a number of years of hearing the voices in my head telling me that I was not going to succeed, that I wasn't good enough. How dare I look at everybody else? They've got jobs. Uh, when are you going to pull yourself together and, and, and go out and find a job and get a salary? It took quite a few years for those voices to quieten down and for me to start listening to the claim. And this was another big douche. Because we think of like the mineral world is the furthest from intellect, heart, mind, maybe even soul. We walk around on it all the time. We tread on it with our feet. But all by myself in my little studio in Swat with the clay, me and the clay, very, very gradually, I began to listen and hear the voice of the clay. And clay speaks in a very, very quiet voice. You can't actually hear it, but you can feel it. But you can't feel it if there's other stuff going on in your mind. So a prerequisite for learning from clay is shutting up. And that's very hard work. But, uh, and I guess I'm still working at that one. But I managed it enough to start noticing that in fact, this amazing material, it teaches you everything you need to know. We think, and uh, with great respect, I, I, I saw from the introduction that you're actually a rabbi. I didn't know this. Uh, rabbi is a teacher, yeah? Now, obviously, if you're going to learn, you need a teacher, except that's something that teachers tell you. Just like in my experience, insurance agents tell you you need insurance and publicists tell you you need publicity. Teachers tell you you need teachers. Potters tell you you need pottery. I'm part of this uh, circus. Everybody's pushing their own angle. But it turns out that uh, you can learn an awful lot by yourself by paying attention to what's going on. I think to generalize it, I don't think it's only clay. Uh, now, obviously, there's something. By experience, by immersive experience. And even I would say realizing where your learning is coming from. Because so long as I was looking for a teacher, I couldn't learn without a teacher. So I had to let go of the idea of I need a teacher. I need a degree. I need a university course. I need some training. And get into the idea of uh, maybe a Kodesh Baruch Hu in his wisdom brought me here to show me, you're interested in teaching and learning? I'll show you how you teach and learn. I'll give you my favorite material, Hashem says, clay. And I, I mean, I know he's also called it Sayar. 
כן? יוצר, it's like changed into צייר, צייר, כאילו היינו. And I have good friends who are painters, but you can go and interview them and find out their story. So this was a great learning and it came together with Jewish learning. And it was only about a year ago that uh, the doctor who was visiting uh, was looking around the studio. We were talking about uh, these matters. And he said to me, well, uh, of course, the mineral world was created first in the order of creation before the plants and the animals and, and, and mankind. Mm. So if you think about it, the mineral world is closest to the ends off. Mm. The mineral world, the world of rocks and stones and clay, is closest to whatever happened before that, before the beginning of creation, when there was ends off, everything, nothing. Wow. Wow. And to me, to me, that started me thinking and noticing that, yeah, that's sort of undeniable. That's not even a perush. That's pshat. But like I said, it's like we don't normally think about, it's something we haven't really thought, it's something I hadn't really thought about. But then I started noticing that really there are a lot of uh, teachings of Musar, ethical teachings that come from the mineral world, which is pretty weird. Even the humility, the lowliness of the material itself, it's not gold. It's not jewelry, it's not precious stones. The material itself, you buy it for a, a dollar, a dollar a kilo. I don't know, you can translate your American. Uh, even in this country, it's not very, most of the clay is imported. It's not very expensive. Uh, so it's a very humble material. It doesn't have a lot of value in itself. Um, it's very patient. It's a very old material. It's however you choose to date existence, it comes from way back. It takes a very long time for rock to change into clay. Yeah, so it seems to me that it follows from uh, that teaching that I got that the mineral world is closest to the end soft, that it contains the roots of a lot of things that emerge later on and a lot of qualities that emerge later on. Among them, the qualities that lead God to choose clay as the material from which to make man. Those qualities are built in to this material, its flexibility, its memory, uh, its finely divided nature. The fact that it contains materials from many, many different places that have been washed into it or washed out of it and ground together with it. It's not a simple material. It's not an element in the chemical world. It's a compound, quite a complex compound. And all these things have their equivalents in us. Wow. And even like, how could it be otherwise? How could we think otherwise? We have an affinity with, with trees. We have an affinity with animals. Many people don't really have much identity with the mineral world. Right. And I didn't either until I started thinking about it in this way. I, I, think, I, I, th I think that that's the main difference, I would say, between Kabbalistic 
tradition and let, let's say other parts in in Judaism that that the body is looked at and for sure in Christianity and and whatnot that the body is looked at as you know as secondary and whatnot yeah. um yeah. And, and in Christianity it's, it's it's looked at as being sinful and evil but in right. in, in Kabbalah really there's no contradiction that the body is the play, you know, the whole concept of the resurrection of the dead. And then and, and according to the Ramban, um, that the body is actually higher than the soul, you know, and, and the physicality. So the way you're, you're explaining it now is, is so prof- beyond profound that, that, that our bodies are not lowly. We're, we are, the body itself is closest to the source. It's connected to the essence and that's like a that's a profound game changer, you know, in 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 that theological or or you know, and 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 mystical and most importantly, very practical uh, recognition of of who we really are and what what our nature really is. You know, it's it's one thing, and it's wonderful to sit here in Sfat and to soak in this energy and have this energy teach this stuff. But then when, when, when I find it in other writings by uh, other people, mm-hmm. other people like Rav Cook, right, who talks about this, the nature of Homer mm-hmm. being in some way a higher level, being more general. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And then as you move up the scale to man, it gets more and more particular. Mm-hmm. But then our job is to get back to that general, the Gilui Yehudo. It looks like if you look around, you know, I'm a person, I'm an individual. Everybody is different from me. I'm alone in the world. How can you talk about Yehud? What Yehud is there? Uh, the work is, yeah, is, yeah, but you come from clay. You have your basis in material, which is universal. So amazing. And which does in itself express Yehud. You, you, you got to, you got to see that tremendous. It's not, so, it's, it's it's pshat, mm-hmm, right, but it's all the way down to salt. Yeah. You know, we're a couple of days away from Yutet uh, Kislev, where um, the Alter Rebbe, Shneur Zalman Vliadi, writes in Tanya in the, one of the most profound chapters, chapter twenty of uh, of Igeret Hakodesh. He writes about the advantage of the physical world, and he says that. You know, it says before he passed, he was able to see the letters, the div- letters that God says God created the world with the Hebrew letters. And he was able to see that within the beam and within all of creation. And he talks about in that chapter how the physical world is, in fact, the whole reason why God created the world, that he wants to be manifested within physicality, within the, you know, what we call the yesh, the somethingness. And there's a true yesh. That's God. And then there's the created yesh. And the two yesh, you know, need to come, you know, and connect one to the other. So it was in this last week's parsha in Vaishlach, uh, again, when Yaakov stays behind. And there's a midrash that says that he stays behind okay. to pick up some Pachim Ktanim. Right. And the Ari writes there. That you learn it. This is the Ari. This blew me away because the Ari you think spiritual and spirit and everything is. Uh, the Ari writes there, learn from 
Avinu Yaakov, the importance of the physical things that you have in this world. Wow. That everything we have in this world that's physical has been given to us by Hashem for the purpose of elevating all the sparks of all the souls that we represent. Yeah. Uh, wow. To me, that's also, that's like a wonderful vindication of, wow. like what we've been talking about, the physical yeah. world. We've, as Jews in exile also, what we had was in our minds. We didn't have the physical Eretz Israel. And for me, returning, coming back here, wow. is uh, reintroducing ourselves to the physical. And uh, that's what Rav Cook says a lot. Rav Cook was a, yeah. a huge proponent yes. of Eretz Israel, and I think he understood it. Apart from the political and the social and all the other reasons, there was this deep. Deep, he had this deep understanding of the real significance. I, am I allowed to mention a, a, a non-Jewish teacher? Of course, William, of course. <laughs> uh, so uh, I've learned a lot from Thich Nhat Hanh, who was a Vietnamese yeah. Philosopher. Buddhist teacher, yeah. who came to Eretz Israel mm -hmm. uh, and did a workshop here. And I went to listen to him talk, mm -hmm. and he was very, very impressive. And he was teaching us, he was talking to us about walking meditation. Uh, very, very slow walking, where uh, your, your steps are uh, linked to your breath. And he was describing how to do walking meditation. And he was saying, and with every step, you come back home. And then he looked up, and it was almost as though he sort of left his script. He looked up and looked at us in the audience. And he said, especially you people. Like wherever you're walking, with every step you come back home to yourself. He was kicked out of Vietnam because he was a peace activist during the war. So Thich Nhat Hanh was teaching us walking meditation and he was teaching us with every step you come back home, with every step you come back home to yourself, to the present. And he realized suddenly that he was talking to a people who had come back home in a way that he, with all his spiritual knowledge and teaching, when he walks, it's coming back home to the present moment and to his body and to himself. But when we walk here, we come back to all those things, but we also come back to our land when we walk here, every step. Amazing. And uh, to me, that was also, that was a wonderful example of a Buddhist teacher mm -hmm. totally identifying mm -hmm. in a way which many of us had not done with the situation that we find ourselves as Jews with the possibility of walking in Eretz Israel. Right, for sure. And that, you know, that gets us, you know, in, into the, the concept of, you know, of Buddhism and Kabbalah and Judaism. You know, there are so many correlations. Um, and of course, many Jewish people did go to Buddhism because of this uh, unified um sort of uh, of of way of looking at the world that it's not just in the judeo-christian or the perceived way that there's hierarchies you know there's 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 good and evil which which of, of course there is but the, the 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 notion of this intrinsic unity which pervades everything and it's within us it's within our bodies it's within our and that connection of mind and heart is very very um attractive 
um, for, you know, for so many people, you know, and, 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 and including myself, you know, I, I, you know, early on, I did, you know, do, uh, um, had some, you, you know, um, explorations there, but I find that Kabbalah, and maybe you could speak about this more, but I find that Kabbalah is just really goes to the, to, 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 to the core of, you know, of this, uh, of this unity. And, and what are we supposed to be doing within this unity? And especially we, you know, the Jewish people, we have a job to do within the physicality, not just, you know, that there is a unity, but we have a, we have something to add to this, be within it, but add to it as well. And uh, our job to the rest of the world. Um, you know, I was wondering your thoughts on that. Well, it's, I mean, I, I grew up, I was born in 1952. I hit adolescence just as all the good music was starting to happen. <laughs> especially and, in England. Um, especially in England. And all you needed was love, <laughs> and love was all you need. Uh, yeah. And everything was about uh, getting together and uh, peace. And, and, and we thought, I mean, I, I don't, can't speak for the whole generation, I certainly thought this is the way it's going to go forever upwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, that didn't last too long. It was replaced by punk, which was a very different, uh, a very different feeling to it. And a lot of anger and uh, frustration. And You know, by the way, the Rebbe said about, about the uh, hippie revolution, he said, he said the ice is finally starting to melt. <laughs> Ken. But now I, it's it's maybe uh, apart from global warming, it started to freeze over again. Because if you look around now, yeah. the Quran, yeah. uh, we've moved backwards from that possibility right. of embracing unity and love and peace. Yes. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, maybe uh, it's you know it's like a taste of mm-hmm. that we got, mm-hmm. but. Uh, so I think looking around, it's very easy not to see unity, not to see the possibility of unity and to see the possibility of more and more dispersion. My, one of my feelings or conclusions, having lived here in this amazing city for 40 years, is that the way that I see my job here, my task here, is to try to see if I can create little pools of unity. And friendship is unity. And uh, working with people is unity. And uh, creating links through pottery is unity. I often think on Friday afternoons of all the candlesticks that I've made over the years. And people have bought from all over the world, (laughs) lighting up on Friday night. It's beautiful. And that's a thought of unity. Wow. Um, so I think there's uh, unity is, is in, a, in this very Kabbalistic way of it's there all the time. Yes. But can there be anything other than complete unity all the time? The fact that we don't see it is our challenge. Mm. The fact that it's there is a certainty. Yes. Um, and we learn that... Uh, the only difference between the good stuff and the bad stuff is that the bad stuff doesn't last. 
The good stuff is eternal. The bad stuff doesn't last. So according to that, we're having a little bit of bad stuff at the moment. We can see, I can see the people who are calling out for universal action on many different fronts, many different issues. It's another, it's another remez of unity. Uh, the internet with all its problems is a remez of unity. Uh, there are so many little signs of the potential of unity that are there for us to realize. They're not going to happen by themselves. Unity is not going to descend on us because it's already here. All we have to do is open up our eyes, right? Again, when you say all we have to do, it's, uh, it's like, you know, all I had to do was shut off the voices in my head and listen to the clay. It took four years. Um, it's, but it's, to my mind, it's what we need to do. And we, yeah. And it's not so I mean, easy. It's, it's tremendously comforting on the one hand to know that it actually exists here all the time at every given moment. It's never diminished in any way. The way that we look at things is obviously is often not in a unified fashion. Mm -hmm. This person annoys me, this government is useless, this country hates us, whatever. These monopolies are running the show. All those thoughts to me are thoughts of Perut, of, of separation. Yeah. And it's sometimes very hard to identify with uh, somebody who has $300 billion in his bank account. Um, yeah. That's the challenge, not to see it as other, but to see it as part of a whole. That's and, difficult. And a process but, that uh, we're in. Yeah. But... It's also coming back to this in Yang, this matter of not knowing. I think the work that we do here isn't about uh, reaching some conclusion. It's like uh, this week's Parsha, Vyeshev, and, and Rashi says there, I think, uh, yeah, he thought he was done. He thought he was going to sit there and enjoy old age. The fun was just beginning. And uh, I think uh, it's not it's it's not a work that finishes because there's no finish, and it's a work where we don't know. But over these years, because everything that I do, every part, like you, we were talking earlier about the difficulty of getting our mind around God creating the physical world and creation according to what I said being about not knowing. How can God not know? And somebody yesterday was talking with a bunch of Mashiach uh, Bokharim. And uh, they said, like, do you know what you're making? I was sitting demonstrating on the wheel. And one answer is, yeah, I know I'm making a bowl. I've got a kilo, 200 grams of clay here. I know roughly the size it's going to be. But every step, every touch of the clay is a moment of not knowing. I know the big plan. I know what decoration it's going to get. I know what glaze it's going to get. I know where it'll go in the kiln. I know where it'll stand in my gallery. But at every little moment, I don't know. I know the bigger picture. I don't know from moment to moment. And anybody who has brought up children has to know that that's the way it is. You know, God willing, eventually, they're going to start talking. They're going to start walking. They're going to get into trouble. They're going to go to school. The whole thing is, to a certain extent, known as a parent. But from moment to moment, it's a total surprise. 
And that, bringing children into the world, is the ultimate creation. We're being told something there. You know, you have to know. If you don't know, you're irresponsible. You have to know and you have to guide. But do you know what's going on every moment? No. And is that bad? If we say God doesn't know what goes on in creation, is that limiting God? Or is it in fact attributing yet another virtue to God that we share? Because we don't know. And it seems to me when I, like, reading Sefer Breshit, according to most opinions, it's all about one mistake after another. And I never found that view very sympathetic. Like, right from the word go, we screw up. We've been screwing up ever since. I somehow didn't really ever identify with that. But the idea that God made this amazing world and created Adam v'chava and stepped back and said, okay, children, run along now. Let's see what you get up to. I'll give you one, one instruction. Oh, you didn't obey that instruction? Let's see what happens next. And to me, Breshit is the series of God saying, let's see what happens next. Oh, we messed up over here? Okay, let's scrap that and start again. But we don't, in our language, we don't really have words to describe things that don't work out exactly as we thought they were going to that are not negative. Yeah, we're, sc- we're, scared, we're scared of them. We, we, it, it feels uncomfortable. Because of the words. Because of the words that we give them. Mistake, error, fashla, uh, any language, these are negative terms. Even not knowing is a negative term. Somebody asks you a question, I don't know. But you're supposed to know, aren't you? So these are all negative terms that we've used, that we've overlaid on the creative process of thinking and making and doing, but they don't have to be there. Like I said, it's hard to talk about them without using the words that already brand them as something negative. But for instance, I I saw recently one of the one of the uh, mantras of startup is fail fast. That's already like opening a little door. It's like instructing you to fail, but it's saying do it quickly, get over it, because and the the, the teaching behind that is from failing, as it were, you're going to learn quickly what to do next. If you sit around weeping and wailing and tearing your hair out because you failed, you're never going to get anywhere. You're going to fail, but that failure, again, bad word, is going to show you what to do next. And in fact, when uh, one of the things I've learned over many, many years, firing many, many kilns, is that when you open a kiln and everything comes out nicely, you go, it's a yoffi, it's a yoffi, you feel good about it. There's not a lot to be said. When stuff doesn't work out, when glazes run or drop off the pot or things warp or crack or stick or any one of a vast number of things that happen in the kiln, that's the only time that you learn. The only time. When things go well, it's like, it always seems to me a little bit unfortunate. 
because that's built into the system. When things work, you don't learn. Mm. You tell Adam and Eve, stay away from this tree. Mm. They stay away from it. That's the end of the book. Excuse me. There's no more Breshit and there's no more Torah. We're still milling around in the garden, telling everybody, don't touch this tree. Don't touch this tree. Nahon. It's only when we eat from that tree and get kicked out and then the whole, then the thing gets going. Like Gun Eden is like a prologue to creation, really. It's not the work of creation. It's to earn our own, you know, true identity, you know, that only comes forth through mistake and through failure. Because if not, we're living the, you know, Adam and Eve are goody two-shoes, right? And the book is over, done, you know, that's so interesting, you know, at the end of the day. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's almost like that piece of, of, of clay that you just put in there and, and like anything is possible. So, you know, so it's like that not knowing of how it's going to go is part of that process. It's it, that, that is the process. And then looking back, we need, I needed to realize that all that stuff that happened along the way that I thought at the time was mistakes growing up. Oi, how could you do this to yourself, this position, whatever? That was all essential to bring me here. And again, the, the Buddhists have this wonderful saying, because of that, this. In other words, this, where we are now, is a direct result of all the things that happened up until now. Many of which at the time, if you had told me, you're going through this now, but in years to come, you will sit in a pottery studio in Svat. I always think if anybody had told me that, I would probably have hit them. It's the last thing I wanted to hear when I was going through pain and suffering and other stuff. But now looking back, I can see precisely how not a step could have been left out. Wow. Let wow. me from Welling Garden City, Eilith Gardens, Reform wow. Shul, to Rehov Yud Aleph, Tzfat. Everything had to be. And again, that's another, to be able to see that, again, isn't it inevitable that our lives are one? How could you even think of a thought where that would not be the case? may like it, not like it, but to say that somehow I, what, I led several different lives, I was different. No, it's all my life. It's all one. But to be able to understand what that actually means, why all those things happened, how they interconnect, that to me is a, is a, is a bracha that, uh, that I got from this place, from Tzfat. I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know that existed. And now it seems so Obvious. Like I said, it seems like shut to me now. Wow, uh, uh, Daniel, I, I, you know, when, when we when we uh, when we got on the call, you know, I uh, you mentioned so how many, you know, we're going to need two days at least, and I said at least. Um, I feel I feel that uh, we could we could keep on speaking, and 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 you could keep on really sharing such uh, such profound uh, wisdom and. Um, and I just want to say thank you so much for uh, for for this for this time for this opportunity, um, and uh, for the type of work that you do um, of really 
really bridging these two worlds of emuna and omanut, right? Of of art and uh, and uh, emuna, which is really one. And in your it's the same word. It's the same word. Exactly. It's the same word. Ninety, and uh, they have the same numerology of ninety-one. You know, which connects um, the above nature within nature. Um, and I'm so glad that you've you're you're getting you know you're getting new students and you just opened up a new gallery. It's called Golem. So anyone that's in Sfat could go and visit uh, this gallery and an amazing new uh, apprentices that uh, that are there that are doing great work. And we're uh, as we're in you know getting closer to Hanukkah, they're uh, they're having some uh, some beautiful workshops going on there with. Uh, with a jug of oil, right? Again, where we have a jug, we have the kad, kad shemen, and kad is 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 twenty four kad, right? Which is the twenty fourth day of uh, you know that pre- prepares us. That's when they found the oil, um, and uh, and it's made out of clay, right? So the oil goes into the clay again. Uh, such uh, so many profound ideas we have from 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 clay. So thank you so much, Danielle. Just for closing, just one last last question. You know, what what would you say is your your favorite book that you kind of inspires you? You know, it's a question that I like to ask. Hey, well, I get inspired in many different directions. I get inspired by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Stephen Olivracha. Mm. Wow. Um, Bernard Leach's book is a book that I go back to. I, I actually, I learned this. I, my closest friend, Sidney Rosenstone, a potter, with whom we got the, the, the school at Tel Chai going, uh, I used to teach there one day a week, and I used to stop off at his house on the way back, and uh, he told me he's not really interested in religion, and I said, okay, uh, but let's sit and learn Bernard Leach's book as a chevruta. And we sat every week and he with his copy from uh, Montreal and me with my copy from England and we learned it as chevruta. And after that we learned Bernard Leach's first Talmud, uh, Michael Cardew, we learned his book, Pioneer Pottery, as a chevruta. By the time we finished that, Sydney was ready to learn Chumash. And we started learning Chumash as chevruta Wow. And wow. Uh, it was interrupted by his sickness, but uh, that book, a Potter's book, is—I uh, guess that's the book that got everything started for me. Got the wheels and turning. Reach out now and bring it down. It's always fairly close, wow. close by, wow. for reference, and. Even though he does, it's it's a handbook for teaching people how to make pots. But I think when I read it, I wasn't reading it in order to become a potter. So I think it's really it's a book that uh, and anyone. Like, yeah, I, I've got to check that out. Bearing yeah. in mind that having read it, they may want to go and become a potter. So <laughs> sort of- well, I know where to. Fi- I know where I could become an apprentice by. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you for uh, for your time, for your wisdom. And uh, may you go from strength to strength and continue on. 
you know, and, and, and bridging these worlds and, uh, and continue doing what you're doing. Amen. And all of Am Israel and the whole world. Amen. Amen. Many blessings. Thank you. It was a pleasure to share in this conversation with you. Make sure to check out livekabbalah.com and join our online school and community to deepen your learning and living your most authentic self. Thank you.